Hello, I'm John Steele of Cafe Direct, and this is the Building Better Business podcast, a podcast that examines how business can and needs to be more than just making money. Unraveling how we create new business models to better serve our communities and the environment. This really is the future of how we'll do business and how we can all play a part. To celebrate the launch of our new podcast, the first 50 subscribers who review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or followers on Spotify will receive a £10 voucher to spend on delicious speciality coffee from Cafe Direct's London Fields Roastery. Just send photos of your subscription and review to podcast at cafedirect.co.uk by midnight on the 21st of November 2021. Now we have an incredibly inspiring episode for you today. It shows how the small actions of just one person can make really big changes. We really do all hold the power to make positive change in our own way. I'm speaking with Paul Chandler today, previous chief executive of the online fair trade shop Tradecraft and former president of the European Fair Trade Association. Currently, Paul is on the board of the co-op group. We discuss the need for the right guardianship of any business with purpose to ensure it stays true to its values and how credibility and diversity are so important for this. Paul reflects on the growth of the fair trade movement over his career, from a time when big corporations thought it had no future, to customers demanding fair trade products in their supermarkets. It's fantastic to see you, Paul. Thank you for coming along. That's a real pleasure. Your contribution to the the cause, as it were, over many, many years has been quite incredible, if I may say. It's really great to be able to chat to you today about how business has evolved and how it needs to continue to evolve at pace, really. You had a tremendous time with Tradecraft, which is, you know, really a pioneer in the change of business over the last, I don't know how long you're going to tell me, probably 30, 40 years or so. Just Talk to me a little bit about those early days and what it was like for Tradecraft to be choosing to change the, the way things were done. I, mean, I joined Tradecraft in 2001, but it was already 21 years old at that point. Uh, and wow. It was technically sort of established in 1979, although actually one would take the history back to 1974. People may recall or, or be aware of the, the big cyclones and flooding in Bangladesh about that period. And the aid agency Tear Fund wanted to make a response and was sending plane loads of supplies and, and aid workers out to Bangladesh. And they were coming back, chartered planes, empty. And a board member of Tear Fund thought, this is crazy. Surely we could do something by by buying some stuff and at least providing an income, some trade sort of with this these flights. And he happened to know a man called Richard Adams, who is the founder of, of Tradecraft. And he in those days was running a proto-fair trade grocery shop in North London. And he had been inspired as a student um, to think about the unethical nature of global trade and want to do something about it and was just in a small way really out of the back of a garage doing a bit of trading on his own behalf but anyway this tier fund guy said if i give you a check for ten thousand pounds or something like that would you go out to bangladesh and buy some stuff and um bring it back. Uh, and so Richard said, well, yes. Uh, and being a very entrepreneurial type, he did that, got in touch particularly with uh, jute producers who, who do woven hammocks and hanging plant pots and things, came back and then did a catalogue to distribute to churches as a, a way of, of selling these products. And it, it went really well, to the extent that he started going back. And actually, he then founded within Tier Fund uh, an organisation called Tiercraft. 
And for four or five years, that sort of carried on reasonably effectively, although I think Richard as an entrepreneur found working within a big development charity a bit constraining. And in particular, there was a constraint around Tier Fund as a Christian organisation at that time said, you should only be buying from Christian groups. And Richard said, well, no, he was motivated by his Christian faith, but he felt he should work with people of all faith backgrounds and without any sort of hidden agenda of, of trying to convert people or, or whatever. And, uh, and this got to a point where actually he and most of his senior colleagues broke away from Tiercraft and founded Tradecraft. Tiercraft continued and continued until very recently, actually. But what was interesting is that Tradecraft was being cut off from the support of a charity, had to learn to become really businesslike. And it's fascinating that when the two companies split, I think the turnover of Tiercraft is about a million pounds. When Tiercraft closed a few years ago, its turnover was about a million pounds. But Tradecraft had grown to £20 million and they didn't have anybody with a cheque to bail them out or to allow them to do things inefficiently. They had to stand on their own two feet. And I think that was a real revelation for many people to say, if fair trade is going to work, it shouldn't be done as an act of charity, but it has to be done as a sustainable business model. And I think Tradecraft was really the early pioneer in actually showing being a business uh, was the right way to go. And so from the very start, it was a PLC. Although it was tiny for a PLC, it decided to go for a PLC structure so it could model very clearly to big companies, actually, we're not doing this because we've got charitable handouts and special concessions and all the rest of it. You could trade and make a profit as well, because we're doing it under exactly the same rules as you are. Now, over time, that became a bit constraining. So so a charity was then also set up called Tradecraft Exchange, which could do things where raising grants and, and raising funding could work. But there was always a very careful distinction that none of that charity money should actually go to the producers who were supplying Tradecraft PLC or to support the um, the trading company. So it became a hybrid model, but quite an interesting one. Over time, you know, fair trade has grown tremendously and it's it's embraced different organizations and it's it's had some strong campaigning roots it's it's kind of modernized it's mainstreamed as somebody who's been involved and has cared about this for so long i mean there was i guess my my two questions really are you know what are the things that you think are really remarkable over time and then also looking back at how this started are there some things that we've missed that we should still focus on that we need to get stronger at I think the remarkable thing is just how embedded fair trade has become in the food business now. As I think you know, I'm now sitting on the board of the the co-op group, and fair trade is taken as an absolute given. Now, obviously, the co-op is a more ethical retailer amongst retailers, but the same is probably true of all the retailers, and you can't afford not to have a fair trade offering within your product mix. That just wasn't the case. Even in 2001, when I started at Tradecraft, I can remember conversations with Tesco's and uh, with Nestle, uh, and they were actually very hostile. I mean, there was a fascinating time in 2002, if I can digress into a little story here, where I was invited to speak at the Oxford Union Debating Society, and it was myself and the then chief exec of Christian Aid debating against the EU Trade Commissioner 
and the chief executive of Nestle, which was a pretty intimidating wow. debate, as you can imagine. And and he was he just said there is no way that Nestle is ever going to get involved in fair trade. On the night before I went down, I was telling my daughter, who was then seven or eight, what I was going to do, and she uh, she jumped up in bed and said, oh, goody, because, Daddy, once you've told him about fair trade, Nestle will start doing fair trade because it's so obviously right. And then I can have Kit Kats and Cheerios again because you never let me have them. And uh, I said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, my love. I, I think sort of uh, 20 minutes from me probably won't change him. So she gave me one of those withering stares that only a young child can give and said, well, in that case, I'd better write to him. And she got out of bed and she wrote a little letter which I actually read to him at the debate. And it said, Dear Mr. Nestle, me and my sisters would love to eat Kit Kats, but we're not allowed to. I think it's right that we're not allowed to, but you could change this. Just think, if you treated people well, people would like you and you would make more money. Love, Joanna. Uh, which I thought was a very perceptive wow. <laughs> letter to write. And it really riled him. And he stood up, this is a man called Peter Braybeck, and he made two or three points of order just in the time that I was reading out that short letter and saying, your daughter is an economic ignoramus and she just doesn't understand the realities of world trade and fair trade is just not sustainable and it just won't work. And, and by, in any case, we pay more for our coffee than fair trade pays for fair trade coffee. To which yeah, I said, well, I just don't think that's true. But in a debating chamber, you can't prove it. Uh, so afterwards, I wrote to him and said, look, in this debate, you said that you're paying more for your coffee than Tradecraft is paying for its fair trade coffee. Please give me the evidence for that, because you know, that was in front of the European Trade Commissioner, lots of other future world leaders. You know, I, I, you know, you've really got to give me the evidence. And given credit, sort of he uh, wrote a, a sort of a bit of a got a bit of a dossier, but I think it was about 60 pages long, which which seemed to show that Nestle had once bought a, a ton of coffee from some remote coffee producer in Vietnam and had paid an, an amount almost the same as fair trade, but he was sure that there were deductions from the costs, true costs of fair trade, which meant that the, our fair trade price was inflated anyway. And we looked at that, and at those days, there was a huge difference between the fair trade minimum price and world market price. We just couldn't quite believe it. And eventually we realised that he was actually comparing the price he paid for a kilo with the price we pay for a pound of coffee. So I was able to write back to him and say, dear Mr Nestle, did you know there's a difference between a pound and a kilo? And no doubt somebody in his research department sort of got a real telling off. But he then wrote back and said, actually, thank you. I now actually found this very helpful because I now understand how fair trade works in a way that I didn't before, having had to look at this uh -huh. in detail. And it was then six months later that Nestle UK started saying, actually, we'd like to do Partners Blend Coffee. Could we have a fair trademark on it, please? As I often say to people, my seven-year-old daughter bothered to get out of bed to write a letter to this hugely important uh, man. And as a result of that, it just happened to trigger a conversation which led to him understanding things a bit better which may have had a role then in Nestle beginning to, to do something in, in fair trade. And, and again, I just think that's such a lovely story. But it also just shows back in 2001 too, big companies just didn't want to know. They wanted fair trade to go away, basically. Now, they may want to do other labels as well, but ethical sourcing and sustainability are front and centre of the agendas of every company. And that is a huge change. And I genuinely don't think it would have happened without all the hard work that fair trade has put in over, over the years. And, um, uh, and, and I think that's great. What I think is now, going back to the second question, missing is, have we lost a bit of our campaigning edge 
to keep taking that agenda on further. And I think there's a bit of challenge to ourselves, actually, in the movement to say, have we become a bit complacent and we're now so focused on just making our businesses work within this context that although we're meeting our standards, are we really innovating and taking them forward and campaigning to raise the bar still higher as much as we could? And I I think we haven't quite got the edge we had earlier on. I also think the point you make, Paul, is the success of fair trade is so much beyond fair trade, isn't it? It's so much about changing the landscape in terms of how we think about ethical sourcing and ultimately ethical business behaviour in the, in the way that you know people like B Corp are now adopting in the same kind of way. But uh, no, fascinating. I mean, what a great story. For me, and not everybody in the fair trade movement would agree with this, but certainly uh, what I argued for fairly consistently during my time was we can't expect 100% of world trade to be done on fair trade terms, even in the commodities that we think could Mm -hmm. be done on fair trade terms. But we can set a gold standard, to use Cafe Direct terminology, that really holds up a mirror to everybody else and encourages them to move towards that because otherwise they're just not going to have credibility in the eyes of their consumers. And I think we should take full credit for some of these ethical labels, which aren't, in my view, as good as fair trade, and they're not certainly not so focused on the, the well-being of producers as fair trade, which I think yeah, that's its unique sort of strength and, and, and feature there. But nonetheless, they are all progress on what went before. And, and even where you see Cadbury's and Nestle sort of ceasing to use the fair trade label and developing their own in-house brands, and very regrettable, I think that is, but they are, as I understand it, applying those new standards across the whole of their cocoa supply chains in a way that with fair trade, it was only a part of their supply chain. So there's still a wider good being achieved. We still need to try and get them to do all of that wider supply chain on more fair trade basis now as well. So I don't think we should be uh, satisfied, but we should take joy in the fact that so much has changed. But we know the challenges out there are still huge. And with climate crisis coming to the fore, indeed, in many ways, some of the challenges are, are far greater now than they were 30 years ago. The thing that I wanted to ask you about now, really getting into a bit more detail about Cafe Direct, because you were involved in Cafe Direct quite quite directly as a director for the Guardian Share Company, which mm. is an important part of the governance of, of Cafe Direct. When you were involved in that, how important and how game-changing is is governance? In you know, Because I think a lot of people think about you know, entrepreneurs and they think about making profit and so on. But the way a company is governed and how much of a difference can that really make? It is hugely important, actually. And I think Cafe Direct has, has got a very interesting governance model and, and it's been interesting to be part of its evolution because, um, as people might be aware, Tradecraft was one of the original four founders of Cafe Direct back in the 1990s. When I arrived at Tradecraft 2001, we still had that 25% shareholding and we put a director on the board, I believe, or maybe even two directors on the board. I can't quite uh, quite remember now. But Tradecraft in 2002, one of the early things I did was launch a major new share issue. Uh, There hadn't been one for about 15 or 16 years, and we were hugely undercapitalized. And I sensed there was an opportunity coming. We needed money in. And and, uh, despite the market crash of 2002, we were the only UK PLC to successfully get a fully subscribed share issue off that year, which was a very good little bit of uh, showing fair trade can do things differently, you know. And we raised, I think it was was three and a quarter million pounds that we raised, which is small beer in in, uh, the corporate world. But for us, trebled our capital base. So that was a really significant game changer for us. And Cafe Direct, I think, had seen that and recognised that it too was undercapitalised. 
So it went to its four shareholders and said, would you put more capital in? And we all said, well, we don't have lots of spare capital to put into you. We were all operating on shoestrings. So it was twin trading and equal exchange and uh, Oxfam, I think. I said, well, but we recognised that that meant we as shareholders were no longer being a support to Cafe Direct, but were being a constraint on it. And so we agreed a process for the big Cafe Direct share issue in was that 2004, I think it was. Something it was like 2004, that. yes, yeah. But as part of that, which took our shareholdings down, I think, to 10% each, and we recognised, therefore, we would cease to have control over Cafe Direct, uh, which didn't worry us and that we weren't wanting to be sort of managing in the background, but it did worry us in the sense of, what if there's an attempt at a hostile takeover? What if Nestle decides to take out Cafe Direct or say, we're going to take it and use it for our new partners, Blend, Fairtrade, Coffee? And, and, and what happens if directors get, get appointed who don't actually hold to the real values and the real fair trade principles? How can we make sure that we can hold the board to account and make sure that it's protected from those sort of hostile moves? And that was the origins, I think, of the Guardian Share Company, which was, again, modelled on something that Tradecraft had evolved to have. We had, in the long term, we had a foundation and they had had all the voting shares in Tradecraft. So although we'd done share issues, the general public hadn't had any voting power. They'd just given us their money. And I said to our board and our foundation when we were doing the Tradecraft show, I don't think I can go out and raise three million pounds and not say to people they can have a vote and hold me to account for how I'm using it. And I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. And so in Tradecraft, the foundation gave up its voting power so they could be vested into the ordinary shareholders, but retained a golden share, which would allow them to stop Tradecraft changing its memon arts in particular ways and, and, and things like that, and forced us to give account to them for how we were living out Tradecraft's mission statement and our value statements. And so the Guardian Share Company was a slightly different structure because that was a foundation that already existed designed to a have be a poison pill i think it had certain things in the articles association which couldn't be changed without consent and those included adherence to the gold standard and to be there as a a slightly external group but a professional group who would review how well is the gold standard being adhered to because clearly there would be reports made to the general shareholder body but actually the scrutiny that can be given by a general shareholder body is, is, if we're honest, quite quite limited because people haven't got the time, the expertise, the access to information. But the Guardian Share Company sort of could still make good challenges to, to the Cafe Direct uh, board. And um, my observation is that a board on its own, shareholders can find it quite hard to hold them to account, except in the big PLCs where there's a few really big investors that they have to listen to and pay lip service to. But particularly if you've got wider goals and just profit, a board can just go off on its own uh, hobby horses or, or particular directions and get caught up in itself and its own plans sometimes. And that having a governance structure where there is a close critical friend to hold the board to account is actually a really valuable role. And it's interesting at the co-op, where we, we actually have a co-op council, just a slightly unwieldy body of 100 elected representatives, but they they meet uh, five times a year. And as a director, I have to go and give an account of myself and answer any question they choose to throw at me about any aspect of co-op. And that does keep you on your toes. 
it's wonderful to see the co-op flourishing so well in, in the last few years and, and I think really getting its mojo um, back, as it were. You've got a, a role on the board of the co-op as a, a director there. I was quite amazed at the strength of the board. I mean, it, it is it is wonderful. Mm. You've got some incredible people. I think you've got, you've got Victor from Social Enterprise. I think you've got Indeed. Hazel Blair's, a number of just quite profound individuals. What is it like working as part of that, that board? It's been a real privilege. I've been on the board for uh, six and a half years now. You may remember sort of a few years ago, there was a big crisis for the co-op when the co-op bank nearly went under and there were all sorts of scandals around the, the then chair of the co-op bank and, and his inappropriate ethical behaviour. It wasn't just a shock to, to the co-op. I mean, it nearly brought the whole co-op group down. It, it was an absolute existential crisis. And that led to a recognition that the governance of the co-op was not fit for purpose. It had been built on an entirely democratic basis. So I, I mentioned earlier, a, a sort of a, there's a co-op council of 100 members. Well, there was a structure of area, regional, national committees of elected representatives. And the board was actually elected by the most senior of those from their own members. And they hadn't been people selected because of their business or commercial skills. They were people with strong ideology and really good values, but actually they didn't necessarily understand the give and take that's necessary to make that work in a business context. I mean, I'm generalising here because obviously there were, there were a few who, who really did have that, but for an organisation of the co-op size, the board was underpowered uh, and underexperienced outside the co-op. But it took the shock of the co-op bank nearly going under to get recognition of we've got to change this. Uh, otherwise, we're not going to be here in, in, in two years' time, let alone for another century. A new structure was created with a much more professional board. And in that, there are four of us who are these a member-nominated director. So I still have to be elected by the wider membership in a contested election. The co-op uses search agencies to go out and find people to put up against me, which is very uncomfortable. Um, I'm glad to say I've been re-elected three times. And I think my fair trade background is really helpful to the membership of the co-op who tend to be very passionate. That Those who are engaged enough to want to vote are passionate about fair trade. So that, I think, has been my um, particular background. So there's four of us who got that membership representation as a particular role. But... They also said, we won't allow anybody to stand who wouldn't be credible on the board of the PLC in this country. So giving a minimum bar that you couldn't just be an activist, you actually had to have some serious business experience or things to offer. And then there'll be another five or six directors who would be appointed primarily because of their business skills, but would have to be people who could show that they really believed in the values of the co-op. And what we found, and we've had external evaluators come in and they say, actually, could you just remind me, which ones are the member directors and which ones are the independent directors? We can't quite tell, uh, which we think is a real success factor, that it means the member directors actually punch our full weight on the commercial decisions. But also, you mentioned Victor, you know, he's chair of Social Enterprise UK and, and a member of the House of Lords and infinite number of other things. He probably makes more points on the values and cultural issues than on, on the business issues, even though he's there as an independent director rather than one of the contested election directors. And and I think what we've found is a real sense of common vision and common purpose. And we disagree on things, but we know we are all wanting to make the co-op succeed because we believe in business making a difference. Many of these other members are on far more 
big boards and senior boards than, than, than I've ever served on. But they say to me, this is probably one of the most coherent and exciting boards to be a member of. And we are very diverse. We're ethnically diverse. Uh, we've got a much better gender balance than, than I think most other big companies. And you can have about 40% of the board is female. If you look at our executive team at the moment, we have four women and one man. The great thing is that diversity can't be about tokenism and just it's got to be about having people who will come from a different perspective and will feel confident to voice those perspectives so they can take it into the mix. And I found that really fruitful. And um, I really look forward to co-op board meetings because they're, you know, they're hard work, but they are stimulating and you just feel part of a team, which is not always the case. And there just isn't a sense of politics. You know, that said, there are things that need doing. So I, yeah, I'm not there to be purely the fair trade champion, but I've tended to be the sustainability and supply chains uh, person. And Hazel Blear is the other person. So she and I, she's sadly just stood down from, from the board because of other commitments, but she and I have done a bit of a double act, really every meeting saying, you know, what's the supply chain implications of this? Uh, you know, are we getting the ethics of, of that right? Making sure that sustainability really is at the fore of the agenda. So one of the things I'm proudest of is that this year, Co-ops produced its ten-point sort of climate oh, yes. uh, plan, which has you know, widely been responded to in, in in the sort of the media and the professional circles as one of the best sustainability plans that uh, any big company has produced. And certainly, what Hazel and I have been doing over the last five or six years, saying we've got to get more discipline in this, we've got to be more intentional. Let's have some milestones. Let's have the budgets. Let's really set some targets that we can commit to. I think as yeah, come to fruition in, in that plan. Challenge now is to make sure it gets implemented uh, as well as we would like. But yeah, no, it's been a great experience. It's clearly quite remarkable and can make a real difference. I think you know, throughout the thread of this conversation that you know, people can make a difference, whether they're an, an entrepreneur seeing a, a plane with some space in it, you know, a seven-year-old daughter passionately caring and seeing that the world can and should change quite remarkably, or whether it's bringing together you know, quite diverse individuals with the power of purpose to give real momentum and, and energy. It's just wonderful to hear that, you know, we all can make a difference and we should all view the change that's needed in the world in, the, in that way, shouldn't we? So no, it's, it's really energising. It'd be great to get, you know, your comment on, on Cafe Direct because Cafe Direct has been through quite a journey of its own over 30 mm. years. You know, in the, in the early days, it was incredibly energised and under Penny Newman's you know, leadership, it it grew and really was at the, the forefront of mainstreaming business with purpose and fair trade. And then it found life more challenging in the mid period in the sort of financial crisis of 2008. And with the mainstreaming of fair trade and helping others come yeah. on the journey, it, it caused frictions. And now we're re-energized. Just really, really interested in your perspective on Cafe Direct and its future. Yeah, well, I think start looking backwards. I mean, you can't say too much about how important Cafe Direct has been in the process of the growth of fair trade over the years. I mean, your very origins was recognising that if we're going to get fair trade into the mainstream and not just in fair trade shops and the backs of churches, we actually had to develop a higher quality product, more professionally packaged and professionally managed. And Cafe Direct was an attempt to do that, an attempt which I think succeeded. And uh, I can remember my early conversations, particularly around the time of Make Poverty History, which is when the big supermarkets mm -hmm. particularly began to get interested in fair trade because they could see there was a welling of public interest in overseas development uh, issues and the rights and wrongs of that. And 
being able to point to Cafe Direct, which was on most of their shelves by that time, and say, look, you can see it does sell. You know, it, it's not there just to be a, a bit of an advert for your corporate greenwashing. You know, customers buy it. And it may be a little bit more expensive, but it's a premium product. That's not a deterrent to, to customers wanting it. And I think that was hugely important in giving retailers the confidence to get more into fair trade. Uh, I can remember talking in 2004, five, the time of make property history, just emerging with the, the main fair trade buyer in, in Tesco's. And, and yeah, he was saying, well, of course, we, we've never really sort of felt comfortable about it because we were worried that backing fair trade would say, well, everything else is unfair that we do. That didn't feel good for the brand. But we did a survey recently of, of all our Club Card members. Uh, and we found that although only about 7% of them are regularly buying fair trade, the Capitaric products, about 80% of them aspire to and say that they would expect any retailer they were loyal to, of course, they'd be doing lots of fair trade because they want to feel good about their retail brand. And they wouldn't have got that sort of feedback and comments had they not had that involvement with Cafe Direct already and say, well, what can we do more than Cafe Direct? How can we go beyond that? And come back to Cafe Direct, I don't think we would have got retailers to make that step if they hadn't seen Cafe Direct. You can have professional products that are of high quality and that do sell and that everybody can take a margin from. So you made the business case in a way that we couldn't have done otherwise. So, so I think that has been hugely important. Great to chat to Paul. Some really remarkable stories there on how the small actions of all of us can make a really big change. Hopefully that's left everybody inspired and thank you for listening. Hope you can join us next time on Building Better Business. <laughs>